all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy for Women, the show all about addressing issues of health and wellness from a woman's perspective. I'm Dr. Michelle Owens, specialist in maternal fetal medicine and OBGYN at UMMC. And today we are talking about managing chronic pain. Our special guest is Dr. Lori Marshall. She's an anesthesiologist who specializes in pain management. So if you've had problems with your back or your neck, or if you're just suffering from pain in general and like to get some information, you can definitely call us with your questions or your comments at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send us an email to women at mpbonline.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The nation's intelligence chiefs will brief President-elect Donald Trump this afternoon on alleged Russian hacking, a day after unequivocally declaring before Congress that they believe the government of Vladimir Putin meddled in the U.S. presidential election. Trump has repeatedly questioned the findings, and his tweets on the matter have put him at odds with the intel community and leaders in the Republican-dominated Congress. The intelligence chief's meeting with Trump is due to be held later this hour. NPR has learned the Justice Department is issuing new guidance to federal agents on how to secure eyewitness identifications. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the new policy is designed to shore up confidence in convictions. The Justice Department's urging investigators to record an eyewitness's level of confidence at the exact moment that person identifies a suspect in a photo array. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates says the guidance is based on science. And so the research has really underscored how important it is to get as much detail as possible about just how sure that witness is that this is the guy. The federal government also wants to make sure law enforcement doesn't cue a witness to pick one photo over another. That's why DOJ is directing investigators to try to conduct photo arrays where even the agent doesn't know whose photo represents the prime suspect. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The last monthly jobs report of the Obama administration shows steady improvement in the U.S. labor market. NPR Scott Horsley reports employers added another 156,000 jobs. December's job gains were a little softer than most analysts were predicting, and the unemployment rate inched up as more people entered the workforce. At 4.7 percent, though, the jobless rate is less than half what it was at the depths of the recession. And White House economist Jason Furman says U.S. employers have been adding jobs for a record 75 months in a row. Perhaps most satisfying, all of this is translating into wage gains. Last year, wages rose 2.9 percent in nominal terms. That's the fastest pace since the financial crisis. U.S. employers have added nearly 16 million jobs since the labor market bottomed out in early 2010. Scott Horsley, NPR News, the White House. 
More emotional testimony is expected today in the sentencing phase of Dylan Roof's murder trial. He faces the possibility of the death penalty for killing nine worshipers at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. More of the victim's relatives are due to take the stand today. The prosecution has said that it hopes to conclude its case on Monday. It's uncertain what the defense will do. Roof is representing himself. He's made no case for why he should get life in prison instead of the death penalty, and he says he does not plan to call any of his own witnesses. The Dow is up 61 points. This is NPR News. Winter storm warnings are in effect across the South. Pat Duggins of Alabama Public Radio says the governors of Alabama and Georgia have declared states of emergency. Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, and Georgia are bracing for several inches of snow. That's prompting flashbacks to 2014 when a similar snowstorm left motorists stranded in their cars along Interstate 59 from Tuscaloosa to Atlanta. Another concern is freezing temperatures into the weekend after the snow falls. Gary Goggins of the National Weather Service says that means ice in southern states that aren't used to it. Make sure you're not traveling. Uh, especially overnight Friday into Saturday morning, uh, and then maybe throughout the day on Saturday as well. Forecasters say the frigid temperatures in parts of the south could last until Monday. For NPR News, I'm Pat Duggins in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Prolific Indian actor Ompri has died at the age of 66. NPR's Rose Friedman has this appreciation. Ompri wasn't the leading man type. He was a character actor in more than 300 movies, beginning in Indian arthouse cinema and soon branching into British and American films as well. Films like Gandhi in 1982 and Charlie Wilson's War in 2007. In 2013, he played a father struggling to pass a sense of empathy to his Wall Street-employed son in The Reluctant Fundamentalist. Your empathy is aroused because of this one man whose face you can see. But with one line of your pen, thousands of people lose their livelihood. You know what? A lot of people, middle class people, shareholders, they all benefit from what I do. You tell yourself what you want. Ampuri wrote recently, I have no regrets at all. I didn't have a conventional face, but I have done well, and I am proud of it. Rose Friedman, NPR News. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Bryant University. For 154 years, dedicated to educating and inspiring students to discover their passion, become innovative leaders of character, and make a difference around the world. Learn more at bryant.edu. This is Southern Remedy for Women with Dr. Michelle Owens on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464, or you can email the show, women at mpbonline.org. And now, Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. And good morning. We are back at Southern Remedy for Women. Happy New Year, everybody. Really excited to get back. I've missed you guys. Um, And we have got a great show lined up for you today. Um, As you know, I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, and I am lucky enough to be joined in the studio today by Dr. Lori Marshall. Now, today's topic is going to be about um, pain management and uh, chronic pain, because that's kind of what Dr. Marshall does, and I'm going to let her talk to you guys about that in a little bit. Um, But as always, we will take any of your general women's health questions, as this is Southern Remedy for Women. Um, Let me give you the number, just in case you're just joining us. 
that number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. If you can't get to the phone, you can send us an email to women at mpbonline.org. If you happen to be in your cars listening, um, we really appreciate you listening, but be very careful because if you're in the southeast and especially anywhere from the top to the bottom of Mississippi. Um, it's gotten a little treacherous out there, so make sure that you are um, are being safe um, because we definitely want you to be safe and, and healthy in this new year. Um, Dr. Marshall, good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, so for our listening audience, as I mentioned, you are... Uh, so tell, I'm going to have you tell us a little bit about yourself, but Dr. Marshall is an anesthesiologist um, by training who has a subspecialty. Um, so... Tell us a little bit about yourself. So, like you said, I am an anesthesiologist, and I am subspecialty trained in interventional pain medicine. I did a fellowship in that. And so right now, I primarily practice interventional pain medicine, and I do a little bit of anesthesiology every now and again. So tell tell the folks who are listening kind of um, what all that means. It sounds really fancy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we treat pain from a variety of mechanisms. We use um, medications, but we also do interventional treatments. So injections for chronic back and neck pain. We also treat joint pain with different procedures. So that way patients are not necessarily always tied to a medication or a pill. It's interesting, you know, when, um, because when people think about um, having pain or issues with pain, I don't know that they necessarily would always think of an anesthesiologist as being the person who would be responsible for taking care of them. Um, so how do people get to you? I mean, most people think of anesthesiologists as being the people who give you the good stuff that makes you comfortable during surgery. So they are accustomed to seeing you when they're in the operating room. But how does that work um, from a from a clinical perspective? So their primary care provider or their surgeon could refer them to pain management. And you can get into pain management from a variety of modalities. You can get into that field from anesthesiology, but you can also enter into it from physical medicine and rehabilitation or neurology. And so they're different specialty trained providers that subspecialty train in pain management. But typically it's by referral from you know, your primary care doctor or your surgeon. Okay, so you're just um, one of several different types of providers that provide that service. So there are lots of different ways that you can end up in the kind of practice that you have. That is true. Awesome. So tell us, you know, we're we're a very we're always interested in getting beyond just the surface with our guests, and so we like to know a, even more about you. So tell us about your your background, your upbringing. Like, are you are you a Mississippi girl? Are you a transplant? Tell us a little bit about where you came from and um, how you got to where you are. I am a Mississippi girl. I was born in Jackson and actually graduated from Madison Central High School. I have not left Mississippi, so I've been here my entire life. Um, I went to undergrad at the University of Southern Mississippi and to medical school at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and actually did my anesthesiology residency and fellowship training there as well. So, yeah, that's where I met you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I have always been in Mississippi and have loved every minute of it. Fantastic. Um, and you have family? 
I do. Um, I am married. My husband, Derek Marshall, is actually an anesthesiologist as well, but he's with the Baptist group. And we have one son, William, who is in the fifth grade. Awesome. Great. So William's probably going to be getting out of jail early this morning um, based on this weather. It looks like it. Let me just give the phone number out again, because what we're talking about and what you do is actually a really big thing. And I'm sure we have lots of people in our listening audience who may have questions. So that number again, one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven 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 six two seven four six four. And again, if you want to send us an email, women at mpbonline.org is where you should uh, send that message. Um, and we will just kind of jump right in. So um, when you're when we talk about um, these people that get referred to you, patients that you see, what's kind of the most common thing that um, you kind of find in your practice or one of the more common reasons that people get referred to you? Probably the most common reason is back pain. Um, Second behind that would be neck pain. And then the third would be joint pain or chronic osteoarthritis. So back pain first, so the back, the neck, and then the joints. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you say osteoarthritis, that's like, so osteo... It's kind of bone um, arthritis, which is kind of the inflammation of the joint. So that's where um, the the bones actually kind of rub together. Right. So the cushions between the bones go away and you have bone on bone that rubs together. And so that creates quite a bit of pain. Okay. And that, and so some of the things that we tend to see osteoarthritis or that kind of um, discomfort, it's really common um, in what more in obese people. Obese so obesity people, is one of the um, things that or can elderly cause it. patients or patients that have been in some sort of trauma, whether it's a car wreck or something, and they've had to have surgery on a knee or a long bone um, that can actually start the process of arthritis to develop a little bit sooner. Okay. And you said um, something that I thought was really interesting, uh, the concept of being able to manage um, people who have these kinds of complaints um, using other modalities or other methods outside of just a pill. So um, what kind of options, say, for example, if a person um, has back pain, um, since that's one of the things you said you see most commonly, um, what kind of other non-pill options are there? Because we all know that there, there are lots of different kinds of medicines that people can take for back pain or they may be started upon, depending on what people think the etiology of their back pain is. Um, but what kinds of options are out there that are like non-pill Uh, related for uh, people who are suffering from back pain? So in terms of back pain, there are different types, obviously, that are out there, and there are different injections that you can receive to treat the type of back pain that you have. If you have what we call radicular back pain, where you have the pain in your back, but it also goes down into your legs, Um, some people also call it sciatica, depending on where the nerve gets trapped, we can do injections in the epidural space. Um, or in the caudal space to um, put some steroids and local anesthetic to help kind of numb the nerve. And the steroids help take away the inflammation within the nerve root itself for the pain that goes down into the legs. Um, If you have just pain across your back or pain across your back that radiates into your hips or into your groin area, we can actually go in and burn some sensory nerves or even just block those sensory nerves. um, And they're called uh, medial branch nerve blocks. Or if we burn them, it's a radiofrequency ablation. And um, the radiofrequency ablations last about six to 12 months. And it's a sensory nerve. They do grow back over time. But it gets you more prolonged relief for what we call that axial back pain. Now, that kind of, that sounds a little interesting. So, you know, except our listening audience, the people who've been tuned in with me over the past couple of years know that I'm kind of a needle phobe. I freak out over the needle thing. So when you start saying injections, I kind of like 
started having chest pain. Um, but but the the concept of use of of burning nerves. Um, and uh, the other thing is, you said epidural got me really excited since I'm an OBGYN. And so all my all my uh, women out, who are out there who've experienced the joys of epidurals, um, there's another use for um, injections using that same space, the same way that you do epidural and place a catheter. Right. You can actually just put medicines in there to get relief of discomfort. So there's another application for something that I think we most commonly, when you hear epidural, or you think about something in that space, it's usually related to pain relief in labor. Mm-hmm. But you can actually use those same basic principles to get relief from uh, just regular pain from of, of other etiologies. Right. And there is no catheter placed when you get them for pain management. You typically just put the medication into the space. There are some special instances where you do put a catheter in for brief periods, but usually you don't have to do that. That's pretty cool. And then, so burning, how, how in the world does one burn a nerve? <laughs> Well, it's very, it's a little more invasive than the epidural injection, but it's not as invasive as a surgical procedure. Basically, we put a probe in through the needle that heats up the nerve to about 80 degrees Celsius, and it just kind of severs the nerve. It breaks it in half. And so it will grow back together over time. But the nice thing about all of these procedures is that they're done under x-ray guidance. So we're looking at where we're going. We see what we're doing. And you'll have an IV in. And so you'll get a little medicine to sedate you and relax you so that it's pleasant for you and it's not a horrible experience. And so um, you said that it's one of those things that is it it lasts, but it, it's not like a permanent fix because the nerves will at some point grow back. But um, so what kind of how do you really advise patients or how do you choose the patients that are, you know, ideal candidates for that as opposed to, say, for example, uh, just an injection? So you typically will start with the injection. So we will block the nerve first, and we want to see, is this what's causing the pain? And if you get relief from the injection, then the next step would be to proceed to this as the pain returns. Um, You know, your back, you use it all the time, every day, and everything that you do, walking, sitting, standing, taking care of your household and your job. And so sometimes the nerve blocks last for two weeks, and sometimes they last for three months. It just depends on the person and their activity level and their pathology. And so when that pain does start to come back, from the block if they did get good relief we know that's the area that's causing the pain and so we just go in there and burn them the next time because that can usually be like a it's a stepwise thing so Mm -hmm. you try one thing and then when they start if because most people who haven't we're talking about this concept of chronic pain most people um who end up coming to see you are people who have actually had a a long history of struggling with pain and we know that back pain is one of those things it's very difficult um it's difficult for primary care providers to be able to pin down the etiology um, and it's also difficult to treat because different people respond to different things in different ways. And some patients end up with both types of injections because they have, you know, multiple etiologies or causes for their pain. And so they end up with epidural injections for the radicular pain or the pain going down their legs and then end up with maybe the medial branch blocks, the radiofrequency ablations for the nerve pain and the back pain that goes across their back and into their hips. Awesome. Well, it's about time for us to get ready to pay the bills. So um, we're about to take our first break of the hour. Just before we go, I just want to give out the phone number one more time. 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. This is Southern Remedy for Women, and we are here with Dr. Lori Marshall talking about chronic pain. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and uh, take your calls. So uh, give us a call. We'll be right back.
Inauguration Day is right around the corner, and Chapter 1 of a new administration is set to begin. As stories take shape, NPR will be here with coverage you can depend on to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. I'm Kara Miller. Every week on Innovation Hub, I talk with the thinkers, researchers, and visionaries who are crafting our future. Tune in to hear conversations about how tribalism shapes us, what new research on obesity reveals, how chicken changed America, and why math class should be reinvented. Coming Sunday, January 8th at noon, hear Innovation Hub on MPB Think Radio. can trust in radio built around you. Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, women at mpbonline.org. with Southern Remedy for Women. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, and I am joined in the studio today by uh, pain management specialist, Dr. Lori Marshall, and we are talking about pain management, back pain, neck pain, joint pain. If you got pain, she's got an answer. Now, I know that we have, this is such a, um, a common problem, both for men and women, and I am certain that there are people out in our listening audience who... Um, have questions about maybe what it is that they're feeling, whether or not they might need a referral to a specialist. Maybe you are a person who has been on several different medications and has actually had several different pills prescribed to you and still aren't getting relief. Um, if that fits you or if you want to share your uh, experiences in perhaps uh, some successful interventions that you've had for your pain, please give us a call. We'd love to hear your stories. Um, the number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven. 7-6-7-2-7-4-6-4, or you can always send us an email at, M- at women at mpbonline.org. Um, so, Dr. Marshall, in addition to um, pain management, um, how do you, what is your experience with patients who get referred to you who have had long histories of medical um, medical management or attempts at medical management with um, with their pain, because sometimes what happens is um, we we're hearing so much now about the opiate crisis and how people get um, addicted to um, opiate um, medications or pain medications, um, many of whom are prescribed these medications for valid reasons and who actually need those medications, um, whether for short periods of time or in some instances for longer periods of time, in an effort to um, be able to have some sense of normalcy in their day-to-day lives without, um, you know, having to deal with excruciating pain. So um, how exactly do you, um, what is your experience in your in your practice with patients that you see with respect to this. And I know that, you know, we kind of, the pendulum swing and some of this has a lot to do with uh, physicians. We take 
some responsibility and are partially culpable for this epidemic that exists because, you know, at one time there was a lot of information that we were getting about not being responsive to patients' pain and not appropriately treating their pain. And so then as we started being a little bit more aggressive with treatment of pain, maybe in some instances not even being really aware of how addictive, how highly addictive some of these medications could be, um, in an effort to address the issue of patient-reported pain, then all of a sudden we have a situation where, you know, we didn't really do a good job of making sure that patients just got exactly what they needed, that they were being reassessed, that we got to the bottom of or adequately worked it up and made sure that they were able to get off the medications or that they weren't continued on medications that they no longer needed. So do you see anything like that in your practice when people get referred to you? We do. We have quite a number of patients that come in that are already being treated by their primary care doctor or their surgeon with some sort of short-acting opioid. And a lot of times those patients come in and they haven't necessarily had imaging done or anything to really find the root of the problem. And at no fault of the practitioner, they're just trying to help the patient treat their pain issues. Um, You know, once you've started opioids, if you do have an addictive personality or even if you don't have an addictive personality, the medications can affect centers of your brain that trigger addiction. And so sometimes it is hard to come off of those medications if you get started on that. What I have found are the patients that get referred in early that have not been worked up and were allowed to do the complete workup. About 60 to 75% of those patients, you really don't ever have to start on an opioid medication. Um, 60 to 75%? Right. Of the ones that come in that have never been on anything. But then you have to look at the percentage and 80% of the people who come in have already been started on something. Mm-hmm. And so it would, I've always thought it would be really interesting to see if we were always the first ones that got to see the patient, would, what would the numbers really show in terms of how many of those patients would truly need chronic opioids for pain and how many you know, we would be able to keep off of pain medication? So um, I want to take a second. We, we might be able to come back and talk, to this, talk about this a little bit more, but we have got some callers on the phone line. So I'd like to go to the phone lines. And first, we will start with Tim from Poplarville. Good morning, Tim. Yes, uh, I got some questions about uh, constipation from taking opioids for a long time. And uh, I tried the newer medications that came out for that, and they caused severe cramping, and I couldn't take them. And I was wondering if it's safe, like, to take milk of magnesia, you know, a couple of times a week, or, or what's What's the best thing, you know, other than medicine to take for constipation? And I'll hang up. All right. Thank you for your for your question. That's actually a really good question and probably one of the most common side effects um, from some of the um, stronger, especially the narcotic um, pain medications is constipation. And, you know, I always have to throw in my OBGYN plug, even with pregnant women, um, you know, we think about nausea and some of those other things, but dealing with constipation is a, is a big problem, um, especially for people who have issues related to pain and then end up, um, having to take medications for that. So, um, 
Absolutely. Uh, Milk of Magnesia um, works. Um, You know, there are lots of different over-the-counter medications that could be used. Um, Stool softeners, um, Milk of Magnesia, Mag Citrate is another Um, one. Miralax is a good one. Yeah, a lot of patients that swear by castor oil. Yeah, and that's interesting. Castrol is horrible. If you can stand it, though, I'm sure it probably will work. I, I'm of the belief that if you take castrol, you could probably get anything out of you that is inside of you if you take castrol. Um, and so are, what other things do you recommend? I, I always tell people um, staying well hydrated is another important part. Yes. And I think that a lot of times um, we don't acknowledge or appreciate how important being adequately hydrated is, especially when you're talking about GI health and in the prevention of um, of constipation even. Um, it's good for your skin and all those other things, but um, if you're struggling with constipation, I always say that that's like one of the first easy things that you can do. Um, and if the over-the-counter medications don't work and the hydration, sometimes in terms of the pain medications, you have the class of opioids that are derived from opium, and then you have the synthetics. And so sometimes different classes affect patients differently. So if you're still struggling with constipation, after you've tried all of these things, prescription, non-prescription medications, sometimes changing the class of medication helps, but also decreasing the dosage and the frequency of dosing can help with constipation as well. And all of the other routine dietary things I think are also important as well um, not forgetting um, your fiber the, yeah absolutely the fiber and hey if bad things come to worse you can warm up some apple juice or try some more improved juice that also happens to, that's like my old my grandmother's like remedies so I just threw that out there for everybody else too um, we had some and and that kind of those kinds of things are just things that you do every day but understanding that when you have medications like that on board that's a very common problem that can also be very difficult for folks um, as well. So Tim, thanks so much for that question. And we're going to go on to the the line where we have Jack from Corinth who's been waiting patiently. Good morning, Jack. Hi. What's your question? I'm calling uh, concerning my wife. She has uh, osteoarthritis and right now she's suffering. One of the things is bone on bone uh, problem with her thumb and she's had some injections to help. But I was curious because I'd heard uh, a political talk show person talking about uh, stem cell there for for that uh, for that kind of thing. I wondered if you had an opinion on that. Um, stem cell therapy, especially for small joint um, therapy, can be very beneficial. Um, what you would want to do, they, there's some lab work that they need to do to see, you know, how well your body would respond to the stem cells, how be, how your body would continue to form, you know, your osteoclasts, but it would definitely be something that she could consider, especially if it's limited only to her thumb joint. Yeah, I mean, she has some back issues too, but right now this thumb thing seems to be the the worst that she's she's got. Yes, most studies, if it's, you know, isolated and it's especially a smaller joint, they tend to do very well. Okay, very good. Thank you. Awesome. So um, we were... Before we got on the uh, the callers, which were some very interesting questions, um, we were talking a little bit about kind of the opiate crisis. And there's some interesting things that are going on. You know, recently, um, Governor Bryant has just appointed a task force to um, address the opiate crisis. Um, and while we know that a lot of that has to do with prescription drug use and uh, misuse, um, that there's also a component of... Um, 
other um, illicit substances or illegal drugs that are contributing to that, not just use and people having issues with addiction, but um, additionally, the problems with um, with overdoses. And actually, we're starting to see more deaths. And um, one of the things that's really interesting that's happened even during my uh, tenure here in Mississippi, when I first came to Mississippi, um, which was, it's getting further and further um, away, but um, just short of 15 years ago, um, when I first moved here, there really wasn't a lot of... Um, concern about heroin, heroin use. Um, the there, there were some concerns about people um, using medications um, or abuse of pain medications, um, but far and wide there wasn't really a, a big concern about heroin and those kinds of things. And what we're seeing now is that those numbers have continued to increase, and on top of that we're starting to see more... Um, more heroin use, even here in Mississippi um, and and across the, the southeast. And, and this area geographically has not really been a hot spot for those types of drugs. But um, what has happened is that even for those folks who might have started out with uh, utilization of, you know, opiates or or prescription pain medications, Um, and then they've kind of graduated up to um, harder drugs or things that can give them uh, a higher or a faster high. Um, And so now what we're seeing is that those numbers are starting to increase and people are dying. And so when, when you hear about the epidemic and the crisis, it's real. And um, so there's a new task force that's been formed. Um, the First Lady is uh, working on a project, um, Renew Mississippi, where um, it focuses on uh, women who um, who are pregnant and who um, are also struggling with issues related to addiction, specifically with opiates, and how we can collectively work to create um, more stable environments for them to get them the treatment that they deserve and to make sure that they uh, have the opportunity, um, if they are uh, getting treatment, to be able to stay with their babies. So this is kind of really far-reaching. Um, and it's really interesting because when you look at the number of people who are struggling with addiction, um, a lot of those are younger women who were introduced to pain medications um, after some minor procedure or after some uh, diagnosis, um, whether it's related to after childbirth, um, that being their their introduction to pain medications and then the utilization or the way that they respond to it, as you mentioned before, triggering centers in the brain, where they end up being more dependent upon those medications than, than were ever even anticipated. And um, so this is kind of like along the spectrum, I guess. Um, it's I think it's fantastic that people know, A, what you said first, which I thought was so important, is that if you're having pain, there should be a process at some point. Now, it's fine if somebody gives you medications to help treat your pain. But there should also be a process that you go through to determine the etiology of your pain, especially if your pain is persistent. Now, there may be instances where we can't ever give you an answer. I know that medicine is not perfect and we're not going to always 
figure out exactly what it is that's wrong with someone. But there should be a process that you are going through if you're receiving medications for treatment um, where people are investigating why you feel the way that you feel or why you're having those problems. It's never wrong for a patient to ask why. And um, to hear you say that people come to you sometimes and they have been given a treatment, so it's like basically treating their symptoms without really fully investigating the underlying cause. We all know that the best thing to do, of course, is to treat the underlying problem. So if you're out there and you're listening and you are finding that you are getting symptomatic treatment without ever having anyone investigate or look into your underlying cause, um, ask the question. Um, and and ask if there is if there are tests that should be done, or if there is something else that you may need um, that might better help your doctors understand um, exactly what it is that is causing your pain or discomfort, and um, hopefully that will kind of help to get the gears turning. And if you find that that the person that you're working with is not receptive to that, then you can always ask another person, phone another friend, and see if there's another physician who might uh, who might feel differently about that. Um, because I think that that's something that's really important. For, for you to say 60 to 75% of, of those people who have not had an investigation can come to you and might be able to dodge the bullet of being started on pills that they really didn't need, I mean, that that's impactful. And if you did that on the front end, just think about how many people might not be in the situation. You know, that that actually might be enough to change the numbers in our epidemic, if you think about it. Um, so we have callers on the line. Um, uh, let me give out the number one more time. It's one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. Again, our email women at mpbonline.org. There are still just a couple of lines that are open, but um, we're going to go to uh, Eddie right now, who's calling from Meridian. Good morning, Eddie. Hello there. Uh, I just want to make a comment about uh, uh, steroid injections for knee pain. I've uh, just recently uh, acquired uh, osteoarthritis of the knees and uh, and I'm overweight, that um, compounds the problem, but uh, I started getting injections, steroid injections for the knees, and it was just wonderful, and it took away, and it man- makes it all manageable for walking and standing up. And I think it was something like a ketone or celone or some kind of, are there different kinds of... Uh, cortisone uh, is probably what you're going towards. Um, a lot of people call them cortisone injections, but they're different types of steroids that you can put into the knee joint. Uh-huh. Okay. And what was that name you said? Uh, Cortisone is kind of the generic um, term oh. that a lot of people use for the steroid that's in there, but they are different types they can use. Okay. And they all work about the same, supposedly, under that under that label? For the most part, yes. Yeah. And, uh, but it, it's just wonderful. I have to, you know, and, I, I, and they say just come back when you can't stand the, the, the pain anymore and uh, fine. And I go six or seven months or something like that. And get a shot in each knee and then it's uh it's it's it makes it more manageable after that are there any new developments in uh, i'm not a good candidate for uh knee replacement because uh, of fatty tissue like i said and and like that they um, um, um they, the doctor said i was kind of a risky uh, candidate for that are there any more new developments in injections or treatment for uh, osteoarthritis of, of the knee So obviously, as you mentioned, you know, fatty tissue, weight loss is definitely a big 
part of treating any kind of joint pain. For every pound you lose, you take about five pounds of pressure off the joints that are you know, in your lower extremities, your hips and knees. There are also some hyaligan injections that are almost like a motor oil that you can inject into the knee and it increases the surface area. So it provides more of a cushion, especially if you have that bone on bone. It's a lubricant that can keep the joint from rubbing directly on itself. And you can get those periodically, you know, throughout the year as well. And that helps for people who have decreased cushion within the knee joint. Eddie, it's like getting WD-40 for your knee. Hey, sounds I awesome. can understand that. I work on my own car. Lubrication. Lubrication. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. Um, you, what, what did you call that uh, 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 medicine now? What, what, um, it's, what? it's a hyaline. It's a hyaline compound. And um, a lot of my Mississippi almost, patients like to call it, well they, uh, well, they like to call it rooster comb injections. That's kind of the colloquial term for it. Rooster, rooster comb. comb injections. But hyaline, H-Y-A-L-I-N-E. So if you wanted to ask your provider about that, that may be something yeah. gets you a little WD-40 and that'll oh, help, yeah. help give you a little bit more mileage on those knees. And some patients sure. alternate that with the steroids, you know, in between so that you don't have to constantly introduce steroid into the joint too. Well, I'm going to do that next time I, it starts feeling bad. I'm going to ask them about the hyalonic, right? Is that what you, yeah. <laughs> if you tell them that, they should know what you're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for your call, Eddie. Okay, and good bye. luck to you. And we are going to keep going with our phones, and we're going to go to Bob in Columbus, who has a question. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. And what's your question? Well, um, actually, uh, a few. I've got. I've been in pain management uh, due to a work injury um, for about three years now. Um, I have. Well, I didn't have before. I do now. Extremely high blood pressure which I've gotten mixed answers in regards to that um, as to um, that my pain is causing that. Um, a few of the doctors said, well, no, your pressure being that high is not a result of, of the pain, but I, I never had it before, and I have it now. Is that maybe the doctor could respond to that? Is that so typically, typically when you have acute pain, you can see elevations in your blood pressure. If you have chronic pain and it's at your baseline pain level, over time, your blood pressure kind of equilibrates. Your body adjusts to the fact that you're in chronic pain. However, when you do have your breakthrough pain episodes or if you're having a really bad day and a lot of increased pain, you still can have some acute um, increases in blood pressure. However, at this point, if you're still battling with it, I would recommend that they go ahead and treat you with medications for your blood pressure because having it elevated highly chronically is not good for you. Well, that leads leads to another question. Um, I'm, I'm I'm on six different blood pressure medications, and I can name them if that helps. But um, they don't seem to have um, a whole lot of effect. I mean, I might get a ten point drop. I mean, my blood pressure on a daily basis is in the area of uh, 190, um, sometimes 200 over like 130, 140, um, and it, that's constant. Um, I just recently was in the hospital a couple of weeks ago, and it took them almost a week uh, to get my pressure down, um, and that was due, you know, with treatments of of um, uh, morphine and, and things like that. I mean, he tried a bunch of different things, including what I'm already on, so. Is that something that you've ever seen or? Um, I have seen that before. And usually in that instance, there's something else that's going on. 
Um, in a few patients that I've had that have had that situation, they've had some kidney problems and they've had some renal artery hypertension and problems like that. That's not necessarily an area where you automatically go to look if someone has increased blood pressure. But if they haven't done any renal scans or renal ultrasounds, that may be something they can consider because you're getting into the area where we call the zebras, where there are things that are not as common that cause increased blood pressure. And it sounds like they may need to start working up some of those areas. And do you practice in that area? And is it possible maybe off the air I could get a number for your office? Because I'm all over the place. I, I go to Birmingham for some stuff. Because like I said, it's workers' comp. I don't know if, you know. Sure. Um, you can give my office a call. And, you know, we'd be happy. You know, sometimes we do have to get patients, you know, sent out for referrals um, right. into that area to see, you know, exactly what's causing those issues. So, Bob, what we'll do is we'll make that information available to you. Um, if you will just hold on shortly, we'll um, get to you off the air. And Bill and Jackson, who is getting the award for being the most patient listener, we are going to cut to a break really quickly, and then we will come back and we will take your question first. So please don't hang up. For those of you who are listening, this is Southern Remedy for Women. We are talking about chronic pain with the pain guru, Dr. Lori Marshall, and we'll be right back. Inauguration Day is right around the corner, and Chapter 1 of a new administration is set to begin. As stories take shape, NPR will be here with coverage you can depend on to help you make sense of it all. Listen every day. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Capitol Hill welcomed a new class of freshmen this week. It was the first time my extended family to even go to college or my graduate. And now I'm a member of Congress. Only in America does that happen. I don't know if my heart's bigger to hold all of the love that I feel for each of you right now. I'm Audie Cornish, how the new members of Congress are navigating Washington later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio. To take part in today's show with your questions or comments, call 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email the show, women at mpbonline.org. We're back. 
This is the last segment of Southern Remedy for Women. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Owens, and I'm here in the studio, and we are talking about pain and pain management with Dr. Lori Marshall, who's an anesthesiologist and a pain management specialist. And we are going to go straight on to the phones. You just heard the uh, the number. Uh, this is the last segment, so please get your calls in. We are going to Bill. Bill wins the award, most patient uh, caller today. And good morning, Bill and Jackson. How are you? Good. How are you? We're doing great. What's your question? Uh, I have one comment and one question. Uh, I'm an addictionologist. I've practiced addiction medicine for 12, 15 years, and I've just been uh, completely surprised by the number of young women who are coming in with uh, addiction to IV dilaudid. It's just completely astounded me. Uh, but the question I have is, Dr. Marshall, if she's had any experience with using uh, buprenorphine products for chronic pain. Um, I do, and I'm actually a SAMHSA and DataWave provider, so I do um, prescribe buprenorphine. Um, Belbuca sublingually has recently come out um, for the treatment of chronic pain because, you know, Suboxone and Zubsolve and all those other preparations of buprenorphine that have naloxone mixed in were FDA indicated for um, addiction. And so a lot of insurance companies stopped paying for them to be written off label. Um, but buprenorphine really does have a very um, important place in terms of pain management. Um, right now, what we're finding is just access because it did just come out. It's a traded um, medication. And so access, even with commercial insurance, is a little bit difficult. And, you know, it's interesting, Bill, that's a great question because I, I, too, am um, a SAMHSA provider for buprenorphine, but I use it to treat my patients who are pregnant and um, because it's actually quickly replacing morphine. You know, those were the only two medications um, that we really use for women who struggle with issues with addiction and pregnancy when it comes to opiates. And um, coming from Baltimore, where heroin was the drug of choice, even, uh, you know, 15 years ago, um, we were much more familiar at that time and used more morphine, I mean, more of a methadone um, for the folks who um, were having issues with opiate addiction. Um, Since that time, what we've learned is that buprenorphine has a, a... safer profile when we talk about the effects on the newborn um, because of the the issues with neonatal abstinence or the the withdrawal of the babies Mm -hmm. when they're born. So buprenorphine has a much better profile. The babies tend to do better. Um, You're able to get away with um, allowing these moms to be able to dispense their own medications or take their medications themselves just like they would take any other prescribed medication, which it gives a lot more flexibility, especially for the treating physicians, because you don't have to um, you don't have to abide by all of the requirements and restrictions to dispense medications like you do if you're doing methadone maintenance. Um, So there are lots of positive things that we are seeing as we are trying to address this epidemic, both in patients who are not pregnant, um, but also in the pregnant population. And so it's been wonderful to me to see this um, this therapeutic option be available even for pregnant women, um, because before the only thing that we really had to use was methadone. And we're not recommending for pregnant women that they detox during pregnancy because that can actually be um, have negative effects. If you can imagine, it can actually have net more negative effects on effects on them and the pregnancy. 
Um, so thank you so much for asking that question. Uh, you know, you're talking about it for chronic pain and for pain management, um, but we also are using it to transition women from um, more riskier medications um, and more dangerous medications when they become pregnant. Can I, can I ask you one more question? Sure thing. Do you have any comments on the resistance to the, in the treatment community, the use of uh, buprenorphine? Um, so just talking about like the American Society of Addiction Medicine, they just came out with their 2016, you know, kind of facts and figures about addiction. So right now you have about 20.5 million Americans, you know, ages 12 and older that have a substance abuse problem. Um, about 2 million of those um, involve pain medicine, opioids, and then about 500, 600,000 involve heroin. Um, in terms of the community, are you talking about the patient community or the providers? Yeah. The treatment community and providers, there seems to be a lot of resistance to the use of buprenorphine for uh, addicted for opioid dependence. Um, you know, in terms of the patients, I think some of that is the patient's willingness or wanting to to go that route. You know, as a SAMHSA provider myself, I often find patients that come in and, you know, they really want to be on Subutex, which other buprenorphine preparations, Subutex has a higher abuse potential. Um, you know, Suboxone and the preparations that have naloxone mixed in tend to have a safer profile and are better for the patients to use if they truly have a problem with addiction. And I think some of the pushback from patients is from the negative side effects that it can occur if they have a slip up or, um, you know, for some patients, it's the stigma attached to that medication now. But that would be what I would see from the patients. Um, in terms of the providers, I really haven't encountered very many providers that are having issues with prescribing Suboxone if they are, you know, data waived in terms of treatment with Suboxone. What I've heard from a lot of providers is just the difficulty with writing the medication. Some of the hoops that you have to go through, the approval process, you know, a lot of the insurance companies now, they're not giving you a 12-month approval process. They want you to send in notes and lab work and drug screens and things like that monthly. They want notes from the patients, you know, stating they're going to counseling in addition to being treated with Suboxone monthly. And that can be cumbersome to some of the providers. So most of the providers that I know that have stopped prescribing Suboxone, it was not the medication itself, it was the process of prescribing it that they decided they just, you know, didn't have time in their practice to handle all the requirements. Yeah, it, it that I think that what you touched on is really important, especially about um, the concept of um, stigma and other things that are associated with it. Um, and I think that's something that's really important because this is a, kind of a, an issue that has really no respect for person. And so it's there's not a stereotypical person that walks through the door that has this problem. And many of the people who are struggling with opiate addiction um, have kind of kind of gone down a, what seems like a slippery slope. You know, you have a, a, an actual problem that's being treated and then um, people find themselves, you know, addicted to medications and there have not historically been a lot of segues or opportunities or pathways for people to get off these medications. And so um, the issue of the stigma, I think, um, with with opiate addiction and as it is with most issues related to addiction, and I'm sure Bill knows that as well as you do, um, the, the stigma is a huge barrier just for people to even to seek help. 
Um, and then, you know, the, the issue of being able to feel like they are in an environment where they are not judged, but where they can be treated for, for their medical condition or complication. And that's exactly what addiction is. It is a, it's a medical problem. It's a medical condition. And just as you wouldn't try to shame someone for being diabetic or shame someone for being hypertensive. I think that, you know, it's going to take a lot of compassion on behalf of those of us who are in the medical community as providers to create an environment whereby people who are struggling with this can come forward and get the help and the treatment that they need. Well, and it's true, and you don't just see it always in the medical community, but I mean, even with the pharmacies and things like that, I have some patients that don't want to use their normal pharmacy because they don't want their pharmacist to know they're Mm -hmm. on that medication, or if they are in support groups, whether it's Narcotic Anonymous or whatnot, they go somewhere 30 or 40 minutes from their home so that they're not doing it in their own community because they are embarrassed. Yeah, and um, and it's kind of one of those things that hopefully just it's, once people decide that they um, that they want to be on a road to recovery, or if they have been on medications for a long period of time and they're interested in getting off, I hope that they are in an environment where they feel comfortable addressing those concerns and those issues with their providers, um, and and saying to them that that's something that's important, and seeking out the people who will be able to help usher them into that. And I think as we're talking about, you know, it's a new year and 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 fresh starts and resolutions and all those things, um, dealing with addictive issues is a very important step toward um, a much healthier you. And so um, that's kind of one of those things. If it's on your list, don't be discouraged. Don't allow fear um, or or guilt or any of those other things to keep you from the opportunity to to have a full life living healthily and getting off whatever it is that that you're struggling with. Um, it's a condition, and fortunately, we have methods to treat it. So hopefully, that's a little dose of optimism um, for those of you who may be struggling with some very difficult issues. Um, Dr. Marshall, we are getting close to um, the end of uh, today's show, and so I just wanted to know if there's anything, uh, any last words that you have for the listening audience. Well, I know you mentioned some of the statistics earlier about substance abuse and things like that, and how we've got the task force formed, and we are in the decade of pain. And we're trying to find ways to to help that. And you'd mentioned heroin and how that is becoming more rampant. Um, One of the reasons that heroin's becoming more rampant, 94% of people that responded to a survey in 2015 stated that they changed from opioid abuse to heroin abuse because it was easier to gain access to that and it was cheaper. Um, oxycodone can go for 60 to $80 a tablet and heroin is a lot cheaper than that. Wow. And so you have a lot of people that, you know, are going down that path because they do have the addiction to opioids, but this was a cheaper, cheaper route for them to go. Um, so in 2012, 260 million prescriptions were written for pain medicine and that has continued to grow. Um, the U S alone accounts for about 95% of the world's hydrocodone. Um, prescriptions and about 80% of the world's oxycodone supply. Wow. So we definitely um, do have a problem. So um, thank you so much. That Those statistics are staggering. Um, and 
for everybody who's out there listening, this is an issue. Fortunately, Mississippi is rallying, and we are going to, to tackle it. We're kind of doing it one person at a time. Uh, we'd like to thank you all for listening. Thank everyone for those great calls and great questions and comments. Um, I'm Dr. Michelle Owens, host of Southern Remedy. And for Dr. Marshall, we'll go ahead and say goodbye. Our show is engineered by Dr. Jay White, and he was also our call screener in addition to my son who got out of school because of the bad weather. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue mobile app. More at bcbsms.com. Our winter storm continues to unfold with a couple of inches of snow statewide. We're expected to see more sleet and snow and freezing rain across the southern third.